Good morning. There are nearly 10,000, I suppose, down at the Lads to Leaders Convention, and uh, we have a good number of those ourselves down there this morning, worshiping with uh, all those thousands of God's people. And we're so grateful that several of you have come from various places with us today, and we uh, count you our honored guests. We ask you to put us to the test. Now, if you feel like maybe the person next to you is not as friendly, it could be another guest. But uh, we're going to do our best as the folks here at Lehman to let you know that we are grateful that you're among us. The song says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth a living just because he lives. The song says we serve a risen Savior. Aren't you glad? And because, aren't you glad? I, I thought I was talking to myself. How wonderful that Jesus died. He was buried in a tomb, but the grave could not hold him. And because he lives, we have such a bright future. No matter what each day holds, and let us always be thankful for that. You know, we have been talking about for at least eight months an event that, believe it or not, is happening next week. Have you ever heard of Equipped? It's a workshop that's going to be hosted by this congregation I just want to say this about how wonderful this church is in so many different ways. The latest example is what about at least 40, we didn't didn't count, it just members of Lehman kept coming up and and helping to serve with uh, the booth that was set up uh, and uh, invited a lot of people from all over uh, the southeast and beyond uh, to come and to be a part of Equipped. And so thank you. You have shown your interest, your enthusiasm, your involvement in so many different ways. I know that a great many of you are attending, uh, intending to attend next week, Thursday night through Sunday night. We have speakers coming from several places, folks who are taking vacation time, who are taking days off to be here, and so we're looking forward to what God will do and accomplish through that. I don't know that we'll know the good that will be done through this both this year and years in the future, uh, through the efforts that you've put forward and what will take place in that. You know, I guess there's a lot of different debates that go on. Uh, Maybe it's Ford or Chevy, or maybe it's Coke or Pepsi, or maybe the question is, where do you prefer to go, to the mountains or to the ocean? I know I risk great personal peril when I say if we have to choose between Ford and Chevy, at least right now in our family, it's, it's a Ford. You can blame Kathy for that. Or if it's Coke or Pepsi, I guess we're united in the fact that we like Coke a little better than we like Pepsi. Kathy and I are a little bit divergent when it comes to destinations of choice. She considers herself, at least by upbringing, a Florida girl, and so she likes the beach and so we compromise when it comes to vacation. And I want to go to the mountains. She wants to go to the beach. We go to the beach. <laughs> I love mountains. I love living in Kentucky. But one thing I'll always cherish about those 13 years are the mountains that I could look to my west and see. God, in His very creative power, demonstrated great beauty in mountains. I suppose that the most mountainous country that I have ever visited is the nation of Israel. And it is well known and home to some impressive mountains. 
When you begin to think geographically and you look to the north, there are the Lebanon mountains and they range in their elevation from 6,500 feet to 10,000 feet in their elevation. There's a place just to the west of the Sea of Galilee that's commonly called Kern Hatin. And that's the traditional site of Jesus' preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And then just to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee, there is Mount Tabor that extends almost 2,000 feet above sea level. And then just a couple of miles southeast of that, there is the Hill of Moray which is mentioned first of specific mountains in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 6. Then we think about just to the south of that, there is Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is the site of tragedy because this is where Saul and Jonathan lost their lives, fighting the Philistines as the book of 1 Samuel draws to a close. And then nearby, at the northwest edge of the plain of Esdralon, there's Mount Carmel, maybe a a little bit more familiar mountain to us, because that's the spot where Elijah faces off with all of those false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. And then we traverse the hills, the Judean hill country, and we get down into the area of Jerusalem. And there we find some other mountains. We find there that Mount Zion. We sometimes refer to that in song. But that's the actual spot, 2,550 feet in its elevation, where David built his castle, his palace. And then right off to the side of that, a little to the south, is a place called Mount Moriah. It has a ridge that's a mile long and about a quarter mile wide. And this is the spot where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's on this very spot that someday Solomon was going to build the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8. You go across a valley that's difficult to traverse. Jesus traversed it on a donkey. On the other side there's the Mount of Olives. A little bit higher, 2,600 feet above sea level. And there on the Mount of Olives is the place where Jesus delivered what we sometimes call the Olivet Discourse, his sermon in Matthew 24 and 25. We let our mind's eye travel all the way up to the eastern tableland, and there you will find the northernmost point of the Israelite conquest of the land of Canaan. It's Mount Hermon. The psalmist mentions that in Psalm 133 in his talk about unity. It's 9,232 feet above sea level. And for most of the year, it is snow-capped. And then we go over to the other side and we are northeast of the Dead Sea. About 12 miles from there, there's a mountain called Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo is the place where the one who cannot finish the journey to the promised land, Moses, he gets to go up and he gets to view the promised land. And it's from there that he dies. But then there are a number of valleys in Israel. You would expect that to be the case, but 191 times in 170 verses, the Bible mentions valleys both figurative and literal. And so you'll see places like Jordan and Shaveh, and you'll see Eskal and Arnon and Jezreel and Hebron. And on you'll find those valleys. There was sin in the valley of the Jordan. Genesis chapter 19, and as a response to this, we see God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam. There were intimidating enemies in the valley of Jezreel, and we read about those in Joshua chapter 15. 
There was fear and intimidation in the valley of Elah. And there was also a giant there, a man by the name of Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And of course, David takes us figuratively into the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm chapter 23. It's no surprise, is it, that in a land where there are so many mountains that there would be a corresponding number of valleys. And so it is in our lives. You know, I think that all of us, if we had our preference, would say that we would like for life to be all mountains with no valleys in between. And surely all of us prefer the mountaintop times to the valley times. I remember hearing a quartet song when I was a kid that goes, I'd like to stay on the mountaintop and be fellowshipping with the Lord. I love to live on a mountaintop because I love to feel my spirit soar. But I must come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below or they'll never know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord. Maybe we would like to stay on the mountaintop. The mountaintop times, those times that are good, that are prosperous, that are happy. But on our way up those mountains and down those mountains, we are going to encounter a variety of valleys. The valley of sorrows and despair and pain and loss. But I'd like to suggest to you that life is made more full and more complete because of the presence of both the mountains and the valleys. Geographically speaking, we cannot have the mountains without the valleys. And spiritually, the same is true. We cannot experience the one without the other. And so I'd like for us to look very briefly this morning at four mountains and their corresponding valleys. First of all, there is the mountain of joy and the valley of sorrow. It's interesting how the Bible would depict that for us. You have the psalmist in Isaiah speaking on multiple occasions and talking about how the mountains are called upon to sing for joy to the Lord. For example, in Psalm chapter 98 and verse 8, the psalmist says, Let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountaintops sing for joy because the Lord is coming to judge the earth in His righteousness. He shall bring all men before Him. And so what the psalmist is calling for there is for mankind to stand on the mountaintop and to praise God for those joyous times. Isaiah does the same thing. Three times he does it. And as he does this, he has the mountains themselves singing for joy because of God's creative power. But once he has the human inhabitants of Salah standing on the mountaintop and proclaiming joy because of the Messiah that's coming in Isaiah 42 and verse 11 and how fitting it is if there is anything that's going to take us up to the mountaintop of life it is going to be the realization that God has sent a Savior to take care of our sin problem. Don't we appreciate that? There can be no joy if we're not right with God. There can be no joy if we have no relationship with the Messiah. And when we think about this, all we need to do to kind of prove the point in our mind is to think about David, the man after God's own heart who had won so many victories. We mentioned Goliath a moment ago, and you see how David does what no one else will do and will face off against the giant. God saw that potential in his life. And you'll see David, when Saul is after him, David has several occasions when he can take the life of Saul, and yet he doesn't do it. 
He says, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. And so he leaves that to God's hands. And so you see a man of faith, a man of devotion, a man who brings the ark of God back home. And he praises God. He doesn't care that he may have embarrassed himself in the eyes of others. He loves God so much. This great man with his mountaintop experiences stands out on a rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman. She belongs to somebody else. And he calls her with all the power and authority that a king has over a subject in his kingdom and he sleeps with her. Perhaps he didn't realize that this was going to happen but as the result of this she gets pregnant. And he tries to cover it up. First by bringing her husband who is a valiant soldier back from battle so that he might be able to cover David's indiscretion. It doesn't happen And so he arranges for this man to lose his life in the heat of battle. And a year goes by. David has taken her as wife. And he thinks perhaps that he's gotten away with it until the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him with his sin. Where is David now? He's no longer on the mountaintop of the joy and success that he has experienced. Apart from a right relationship with God, he is despairing. And if we have any doubt of that, listen to what he says. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. He shows us something that we can appreciate and know. And that that is that there is no joy apart from being right with God. And when we are, there's joy. Do you not agree with me that most people in this world are looking for joy, but most people can't find it? And yet God shows us in His Word where that joy is to be found, and it's in remarkable places that we might not think. When we consider joy, we think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. He says, May the God of hope give you joy and peace in believing. Believing in that God that brings that hope. Or how about in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19 when the Apostle Paul says, Who is our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? Or when we think about this God of joy and the joy that He brings, we think about Jesus Himself. The Hebrews writer says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. The Hebrews writer is saying, Look at Him as an example. He had a present agony, but He could look beyond that to the joy that was out in front of Him. Do you see what brings joy? It's faith. It's fellowship. And it's a bright look at the future. And that's what God wants for us. And so God is there with us when we're up on top of that mountain of joy through those great times, those good times, the times in which we're close to God, those times in which everything is going great. But you know what helps me to make it through is the idea that I also have God with me in the valley of sorrow. You know, the Bible would tell us that there are going to be times of sorrow in our lives, and I need to know this. 
I realize in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul points to the Corinthians and he says that there's a godly sorrow that's without regret, that comes when you come face to face with the sin problem in your life and it breaks your heart and you want to make things right with God. But there's also a sorrow that can come simply because we're trying to live the faithful Christian life. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.19 that you may sorrow because you're suffering unjustly. Well, what about 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13? Paul speaks to Christians who had lost their Christian loved ones. And what he says is, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that have fallen asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. Listen, we may not sorrow like the world, but Paul is saying we still sorrow. We experience this sorrow. And so living a faithful, devoted Christian life, we're still going to get knocked off of our mountaintop of joy. And we could fill an entire sermon with the reasons why we experience sorrow in our lives. But what's so important to know is that God is with us through every valley of sorrow that we encounter in this life. Hey, what does Isaiah say in Isaiah 53 and verse 4? Surely... He has carried our griefs and borne our sorrows. And we carry that all the way to the very end of Revelation 21 where we see that God will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow. So from the cross to the glittering crown, God has said, I'm with you when you're on the mountaintop of joy. I'm also with you when you're in the valleys of sorrow. How comforting to know that God is with us in the mountains and the, and the valleys, when it's the mountain of joy and the valley of sorrow. But I also suggest to you that God is with us, not only there, but God is with us in the mountain of victory and the valley of defeat. When I consider this, I think about the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 4, God predicts that in the valley of Jezreel, that Israel is going to be defeated in military action because God was going to break the bow. In other words, God was going to see to it that they were not going to be able to stand. They weren't going to be able to win. But then God points out the fact, the idea, that that name Jezreel means God sows. Hosea 2, 17-22. And what God is saying is that in the future, God is going to plant this lush garden. And that garden that was going to be so fruitful was going to be Israel itself. Now what God's point is at the time is, is that Israel was going to be defeated because they had turned away from God, the only possible source of their victory. And so for them, the valley of Jezreel was figurative, a place called Jezreel, and it was figurative too. And when we look at our own lives, we realize that so often we turn to the wrong place. We trust in the wrong thing to bring us victory. And so Bible writers have to remind us we're not to turn and we're not to look. Tells us that we are not to put our trust in man. Psalm 146 and verse 3. We're not to put our trust in riches. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 28. We're not to put our trust in military might. Isaiah 31 and verse 1. But instead what he says is, is that we put our trust in our victory our victory is in our faith, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, and our victory is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57. We realize that there are some great victories. Now I want you to think about, take inventory. What are the mountains of victories that we enjoy in this life? 
Well, maybe we might say that a, a great victory that we experience in this life is bringing a soul to Christ. One of the most challenging Bible classes that I've ever had to teach was the Bible class this morning on the discipline of evangelism. But how wonderful when we have the courage to share the gospel with somebody else and we see them become obedient to the faith of Christ. Would you call it a mountaintop of victory when you lead your family to be faithful followers of Jesus? When they see it first in you and then when they look at your example of faith, they follow in your footsteps. Would you call it a mountain of victory when you find yourself in a place where you faced sin squarely in the eye and it's been a struggle, a temptation, and you overcome that and you put it behind you? Or maybe you've successfully handled some conflict or some problem in your life. Or maybe you find yourself in a position to where you have looked at a a circumstance where there's been an enmity, a problem, a severed relationship, and you took the steps and you humbled yourself and made that right. But you know, the thing is, if you have victories in those areas, they're going to be a battle that's going to rage for the rest of your life. But what gives us hope and what gives us confidence is that God is with us up on the mountains of those victories. We're only there because He empowers us. He enables us to win that victory through Christ, through His resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57. But sometimes we're going to experience defeat. I'm a history nerd. You already know that. I love presidential history. Everybody knows about Grover Cleveland, right? It comes front of mind. The president we think the most of. He won the 1884 election. And he wanted to run for re-election. So he did so in 1888. He ran on a simple platform of low tariffs on imported goods. There was a man named Benjamin Harrison. His uh, relative in his past, his grandfather, had been president too. But now he comes with this message of high uh, tariffs on imported goods. And the political machine in New York, known as Tammany Hall, they favored Benjamin Harrison's position. And so they influenced, and some would say even orchestrated, his defeat. Grover Cleveland, even though he had over 100,000 more popular votes than Harrison did, he lost in the Electoral College because the 36 votes of his home state, Tammany Hall was able to influence and to change to the side of Harrison. And so even though Grover Cleveland was widely known as a man of honesty and courage and integrity and a man of uncommon common sense... He lost the election of 1888. What is the point? Well, it reminds me that sometimes I suffer defeat because of my sins and my missteps. But sometimes I may suffer defeat because of injustice, because of treachery, because of what somebody else has done. Sometimes you're going to be on the mountaintop of victory. Sometimes you're going to be in the valley of defeat. And sometimes you're going to be in that valley of defeat because of decisions that you've made, but also sometimes because of what others have done. You'll find yourself in the valley of defeat because of temptation. David was in Psalm 51, verse 10 through 12, but God is with us in the valley of defeat. God is with us in the valley of defeat when we're there because of discouragement. Look at the great prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Sometimes we're going to find ourselves in the valley of defeat and God is with us when we're there because of disappointment. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Sometimes we have tried to train our children in the way that they should go. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 and they still fall away and will still feel defeated. Moms and dads, God is with you 
in those valleys of defeat. God is with us when we're in the valley of defeat because of loneliness and because of betrayal. What makes life worth living is knowing that God is with me when I've never felt better and things are going as well as they could in my life, but God is also there with me when I've been beat down by life and I'm hurt, either because it's my fault or or if it's not. God is with us in the mountains and in the valleys. He is also there with us in the valley, not only of victory and defeat, but He is there with us in the valley of fear and the mountain of courage. The story was about ten henpecked husbands. Henpecked husbands who decided to form a club to decry their oppressive wives. So they met in their secret hiding spot and they sat there and they laughed and they commiserated and told stories about how unfair their wives were. But those wives were not only henpecked experts, but they also knew how to uncover hiding spots. And so they found their secret hiding place and they decided to raid the place. Nine of the men instinctively stampeded out a side door like rats, leaving that one man to face those women. They came in and they laughed at the success of their raid and they just left. Those nine men, somewhere in the dark recesses of that place, they decided that that tenth man, that bold man, who stayed and faced those wives, that he should be the president of their club. And so they decided to go and to give him the post and congratulate him, but they found that he had died of fright. Sometimes... We may look to others like we're bold, but inside we're feeling afraid. In Psalm 27 and verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Living in this life, there are times when we're going to feel afraid. But listen, if you're a child of God, there is no reason to fear life or death or hell. John writes at the end of his first epistle in 1 John 5 and verse 13. He writes that it is possible for us as children of God who are walking in the light to have this security of knowledge that things are right in our relationship, that live or die, that we're right with God. Man, how we struggle with fears. You know, psychologists have devoted pages and pages to the things that people fear. Things I would never imagine. Did you know that there are people who are afraid of balloons? Palophobia, if you're wondering. There are people who are afraid of beards. Poganophobia. There are maybe guys, maybe girls too, who are afraid of marriage. It's called gamophobia. There is actually even a fear of peanut butter. I don't know if you suffer from that. Arachibuterophobia. There are folks who are afraid of school. It's called didascalinophobia. And I suppose when they graduate, they go out and get a job, or they don't, and they suffer from ergophobia, the fear of work. You know, we, we struggle with fears about things you would think you should and things that you think that you wouldn't. But we, we wrestle with spiritual fears too. But God wants us to know that we have no reason to be afraid because He is with us in that valley of fear. He says through David in Psalm 23 and verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In Psalm 56 and verse 11, he says, Why would I be afraid? What can man do to me? As we saw a moment ago in Psalm 121, as Chase read that so well to us, one of Kathy's favorite psalms. In Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help. 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not cause your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so I live with this confidence that when I feel bold, I know it's because God is with me. But when I'm in the valley of fear, I know that God is with me there too. And He will help me to climb out of that through His power and His strength. But then finally, there is the mountain of life in the valley of death. A Jewish scholar by the name of Yaakov Paley says that life is a mountain, and while mountain is earth grown tall, mountains also shrink. They're buffeted by winds, they're rinsed by rains, and they're carved by rivers. Have you ever wondered why the wind beats on the mountain but leaves the flatlands largely alone? The problem is the mountain itself. It's simply and it stubbornly refuses to move. And so the wind must use its force. It either forces itself around it or over the top of it. And yet the wind takes a little of that mountain with it. And so the question is, what will our mountain be? Will our mountain be a monument of self-importance? Or will our mountain be a mountain of humility wherein God can reveal himself? As we have talked about these other mountains, there are, there are some mountains that we may not experience. There are some valleys that we may not go through, but there is one valley that is inevitable for all of us. There's one valley that all of us will go through, and that's the valley of the shadow of death. We get one life, and in that life that we're given... We have the opportunity with the strength and the vigor of youth, with the experience of middle age and the wisdom that we accumulate in old age to use that life as a holy mountain where God can reveal himself to others. Or we can make it a monument of self-importance, but we realize that we will eventually erode away. How will we use the life that we have? The thing is, as we face that valley of the shadow of death, The beautiful truth is is that we will not go through that that valley alone. We're going to go through it. Unless Christ comes again, that's one that we cannot escape. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. But he wants us to be ready for that. And it's a remarkable thing that the Bible talks in this terms. We, We talk about death and life, but you know the way to live is to die. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, the Bible says that wherefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Who do you bury? You bury a dead person. That like as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also should rise to walk in newness of life. Like Jesus died and was raised again the third day, we die to self, to sin, and as the result of our obedience to the gospel, we rise to walk in newness of life. And then what happens after we become a child of God? We have to die to live. Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 3, For you have died, but your life is hid with God in Christ. One of my favorite gospel preachers when I was a boy was Franklin Camp, and he told a story about when he was playing as a little boy. He said he liked to play in the woods far from his home, but the canopy of those Alabama trees helped him to lose all sight of time as he was playing without care until it got dark and the the shade of night began to draw in and he realized that he was in trouble. And so in his concern, he began to run home. 
And as he ran about halfway home, it grew so dark, he became concerned, he became frightened, and he began to cry and to cry out. In the total darkness, he was frozen, and a hand reached out and grabs his. It's his mom. And she carries him home. He says that's what it's like for the Christian. When we reach the valley of the shadow of death, for the Christian, we don't walk through alone. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I don't know, none of us knows, exactly when we'll cross that valley. But we have no reason to fear. If we're faithfully walking in the light of the sun, our Lord will walk with us through there. Aren't you thankful for a mountain called Calvary? Was that a mountain of victory or defeat? There Jesus died. He surrendered his life. As the Romans were ruthlessly nailing him, as the Jews were disrespectfully mocking him, surely as the devil reveled, they thought they had won and Jesus had lost. But Jesus, in giving up his life, gained the victory. When he came out of that grave the third day. So that we, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, can come out on the other side to that ultimate mountain of everlasting victory. There's no reason to fear crossing unless we're unprepared. The invitation song that Phil's going to lead serves as an encouragement. If you're not ready, God wants you to be if you'll respond to his message of salvation, if you've never done that before, you don't have to do it publicly here in the assembly, but let us help you to do that. Let's not let this day go by without you taking care of that, acting on your faith in Christ. And as you have that faith in him, in his plan to save you from your sins, to repent of your sins and to be baptized, to have those sins washed away, die to self and rise to walk in newness of life. Let us help you do that. If you're a child of God who needs to make public confession, You realize that you're not living in the way that you should and you want to turn away from that. You have brothers and sisters who want to rally around you and encourage you and help you. It would be our honor to show you our love and our support as you try to live in the way that pleases Him. To turn away from whatever it is that's keeping you from that. Or maybe you're just overcome with the the defeats that you're going through right now and you need us to pray for you as you look to Him to help you have that victory. The invitation is open. If you need to respond to it, won't you come as we stand and sing?